When before we began this interview, Stephen Crowder was in fact wearing pants. He walked into the room not wearing pants to make me specifically uncomfortable. Well, we do sell them since you haven't plugged my stuff. You've been plugging psychologists at uh, thelatofcrowdermerchstore.com. So here we are on the Sunday special with Stephen Crowder, who lacks pants. And we will get to all of the questions for Stephen Crowder. We will ask him why, indeed, he feels that it is necessary and appropriate for him not to wear pants and thus to show his junk to the entire world. But first, let's talk a little bit about Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere at any time. Look, Stephen Crowder could use a therapist, and you might need to as well. All you need is a computer with internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. That means you can improve your mental health even if you've had trouble making time for it in the past. There's no stigma attached. You know, I am a big advocate of if you got something on your chest and you need to get it off your chest, you should talk to somebody who knows what they are talking about. And that's why you should be talking about everyday challenges at work or at home. You can chat about life. There are no extra commutes, no leaving the office, no judgment. Remember, therapy isn't just about venting those thoughts or digging into childhood memories. It's about practical everyday strategies for stress management and living a happier life. Having a therapist simply provides you a designated person for you to talk to who's trained to listen and help you make positive changes. The Talkspace platform has over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing life challenges we all face. To match with the perfect therapist for a fraction the price, the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com slash Shapiro. Use that promo code Shapiro. Get 45 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Shapiro. Talkspace.com slash Shapiro. And again, 45 bucks off your first month. I'm a big advocate, as I say, of if you need help, talk to somebody, and Talkspace can make it happen for you at a fraction of the price of going to a therapist. It's totally worth it. Go check it out right now. Talkspace.com slash Shapiro. All right, Steven Crowder. This is going to be hard for me. How many of those are we going to have to do? Where there are I just, four of those. Because I'm so tempted to screw all of them up for you. I know, and, and you already did one, so congratulations. Close. You did, you did, You did stumble a little bit. I know. Well, you know, you actually ducking into my camera line and then pouring water into your own mug is always definitely a wonderful uh, you thing. You know, I just don't trust you. Well... Back at you, dude. I mean, I'm the one wearing pants, so all I can say is that when before we began this interview, Stephen Crowder was, in fact, wearing pants. He walked into the room not wearing pants to make me specifically uncomfortable because, as most people know, I am deeply uncomfortable with the male body. Well, I think you're deeply uncomfortable with the, the men and women of our armed services because this is what they wear. They wear ranger panties, or as they're known, softies uh, in, in, uh, in uh, the Navy. Uh, um, so I don't know why you would, I don't know why you would disrespect them that if, way. If I were more but we do sell them since you haven't plugged my stuff. You've been plugging psychologists at uh, thelatofcrowdermerchstore.com, and of course everyone knows where the mug club available. Yeah, if I were more of a patriot, I'd be staring at your junk with with more enthusiasm. But apparently I am not. So oh, all right, let, let's jump into let's jump jump into what you do for a living, which is supposedly comedy, allegedly. So yes, so Stephen Crowder, for those who don't know, you know, for a guy who's so smart, that was redundant right off the supposedly allegedly. Let's try and curb back the flaw. Well, supposedly, so supposedly is not a legal term. Allegedly is, but. Let's talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. So he runs a show. Do I need a lawyer present? Do I need, do I need half Asian Bill Richmond? Is that Always, I'm Jewish. But, you know, but Crowder <laughs> is sitting here. And, and I, people should know, the way that I got to know Stephen Crowder was, in fact, as his lawyer. Yes. So many, many years ago, we got to know each other because I was recommended to Stephen for some odd reason as somebody who might be able to negotiate a contract. I think it was Andrew Breitbart. Well, it was probably Andrew. It's always Andrew, right? Which made no sense because it wasn't the kind of law that you did. Right. But you, I could read a contract. Yeah. And, so, and, and so you were Jewish. This is correct. And he trusted you. And uh, I remember that. You went in and you, we kind Three of... Three bad qualities right off the bat. <laughs> a lawyer who's Jewish. <laughs> no, no. And, I, I said, listen, I don't know someone uh, who could do this. And I remember he said, this guy, you know, I trust this this guy. He's, he's younger, but he'll, he'll know how to take care of you. I remember we went in, kind of like the Donald Trump. We tried to negotiate going in high. Mm-hmm. And we'd expect them to come back. But they didn't. Right, they were just like, no. And I remember I thought you were probably you probably held some animosity toward me because you were like, "Crap, I should have come in lower because you know 
I was making so much more than you. It's true. You you were you were really earning at that point. <laughs> and first, at that age. And then the first time that the first time that we met in person, Stephen Crowder came to my uh, came to my condo. Mm-hmm. He, I can't remember why you were there at all. I mean, you just sort I of appeared, either. this giant Canadian. Uh, and he and we're upstairs, and I'm about to do a radio show or something. Yeah. And you decided to demonstrate your Brazilian jiu-jitsu skills by putting me in a headlock, and then basically the knocking me choke, out. But you said you had a hernia only after I put you in the choke. That's true. I, I was like, why didn't you tell me before this? And then I then I felt bad, but only a little bit. Right, but I didn't launch a lawsuit against you, and that was the beginning of our friendship. This so. was the beginning of our friendship. The same thing you did my Fox News contract early on, because yeah, you know, listen, at that point I wasn't really obviously I wasn't looking for anything special, but I remember I just said I know some people don't own the rights to their own names, and I want to be protected. Uh, I want to make sure that I, I maintain kind of my autonomy. And you did. You you helped uh, help me with that at that point. We didn't have a, I didn't have a lot of negotiating power. Yeah, but it was it was very helpful. Well, it's always good that that my legal skill is talked up at the beginning of a show, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Well. Stephen is indeed the the creator and the host of Louder with Crowder, which is the most successful comedy comedy show on the right, I think, pretty clearly and obviously. Thank and you. he has a second-rate mug, which we've allowed him to actually bring I in do. here, pour his water into. Obviously, this right here, the leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler, is far superior. It is yeah. taller. It has more bulk. Uh, sort of the reverse of our bodies, It employs actually. a lot of Chinese children. This so is short and fat like me, and this one's tall and skinny like you. But in any case, uh, the, the, uh, the, the the show is is takes a lot of work. It's really worth watching. So I wanted to ask, let's yeah. get deep into the weeds with Stephen Crowder from the okay. very beginning. How did you go from a misanthropic Canadian child to a giant Texan comedian in one short life? You know, it's, it's, uh, I was always, it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Did you ever want to do anything else as a kid? Did you ever want to be a fireman or a policeman? I mean, I know you're playing like no, Carnegie I, I wanted, Hall at, at one point months. I was interested in, in like genetic science. I was also a violinist, so I thought about doing that. But, okay. but I was always very into politics. And then you saw all the Asians doing the violin. You were like, I was a pretty good violinist. I, mean. I know you were a very good violinist, but you know the, the difference is. To be honest th- with you, it wasn't really about the race. But. I don't think your parents were jamming piano keys into your neck if you missed a missed a note. I wow. actually, my half Asian lawyer, right my half Asian lawyer actually, his so, mom used to slam the piano on his fingers. Talk about like he talks about it. His tiger mom, and he's brilliant. He's so he's an SMU uh, uh, law grad. That's actually you know it's, that's a funny story. Speaking of Texas, so my my half Asian lawyer Bill Richmond, SMU law grad. When we did the show at SMU, he was in there. He was a part of the show. Uh, he was in the crowd, and we did a parody of Say Anything where he was holding up the boombox and In Your Eyes, but Peter Gabriel was playing. But he's walking in, and there are these protesters on the other side of the street. It was like there was a paltry, like, 40 people. But one of them was his law professor. He goes, Bill, what are you doing? He's like, I'm in the show. He's like, I'm protesting the show. So I, I kind of assumed that in law you would have more conservative professors. Um, turns out, I guess that's not no, the that's case. Not Certainly true. not anymore. Yeah, major law firms are very, very much to the left. And at one point, I'll have to do a show where I talk about all my experiences in my interviews for, for being a lawyer. Like I was, I was at Harvard Law School okay. and I was interviewed by 32 firms. The way it works at Harvard is that everybody shows up to recruit you because you're at Harvard Law School, which means you're smart. And so they then come to the, they come to the Charles Hotel. That was, a, and that was a self-pat. For sponsors who don't see how creative he is with the compliments, that was a self-pat. Yeah, no, Harvard I, means you're smart. It's smooth, smooth. I tell you what's not smart is these generic chairs. My, my back's going to be strong. I'm going to have to get up and stretch right in front of you. Well, please do not. And, okay, and in any case, 32, school, uh, 32 different firms came and recruited me and I went one for 32 on my interviews, specifically wow. because I was right-wing and they saw on my resume the names of my books. But in any case, let's get back to you. So- I, I, I want to well, compliment you there because a lot of, this is one thing I know that bothers you and bothers me. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, it was because I was right-wing. No, in this case, it's true. Because anyone out there who knows your background in law, and listen, I, you know, I, I despise you, of course, all that, but you are supremely qualified, uh, and it's clear that there was a bias against your political worldview. Well, I mean, they, they, they pretty much said it yes. right off the bat. but I know you get bothered when people say, well, I didn't get accepted right. because I was, I was at Schenectady Community College and I bombed out. It's like, well, no, huh? it's not because you were conservative. It's the same thing with a lot of sort of conservative 
self-professed comedians sometimes. Like, I know every single conservative in the comedy, in the industry, in the entertainment industry, right. certainly comedy. And um, a lot of people just say, well, it's because I was right-wing. It's like, well, hold on a second. It's because you're, you're not there yet. I don't right. mean to say they're not good, but they're not there yet. So in that case, I want people to know that is entirely legitimate that it was because of your worldview and probably because you couldn't keep your mouth shut about it. Well, so on my resume, the, the name of my second book was Porn Generation, How Social Liberalism is Corrupting Our Future. In one particular interview with Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, the partner who was interviewing people, I walked in before I even sat down or said my name. He said, I walked I walk in the door, I remember this clear as day, and he says, it has always been my contention that conservatives and religious people in general have a Freudian fear of sex. He hadn't even shook my hand yet. And at that point, I was like, I'm not getting this job, so go you know, F this guy. And that was pretty much how the interview went. Wouldn't that went. also be improper verbiage? Because wasn't Freud the guy who wanted to sleep with his mom? Um, he didn't have a fear of sex. He thought that other people... So I guess you're saying a Freudian complex? Yes. Because Freud that, that's himself what, that's wasn't what he was, afraid of sex. Right, that, that, that's what he was going for. Yeah. In any case, let's get back to the Sorry. question that, that you completely avoided here, which was, how did you go from being a giant Canadian to a giant Texan? And also, did you always want to do political comedy or did no. you want to do pure comedy? No, I always just wanted to... If you'd have asked me when I was 12 or 13, I would have said... Uh, I, I want to be an Academy Award winning actor. Really, that's what, that truly would have been my dream. I just wanted to act, but I also always loved comedy. I started writing stand-up when I was 14. Um, to do actually the school talent show, which ended up being canceled. So I just continued writing. So the first time I did stand-up, I think I was 17, but I had to cut down from about an hour of material to five minutes. Most people bomb their first time. The only reason I didn't bomb was because I had so much material to edit back. Uh, but then when I found out how corrupt, obviously, the Academy is and that the awards didn't mean a whole lot, I said, okay, what, I want, what do I want to do I was just talking about this with Dennis Prager not long ago. I said, okay, if I can't be an Academy Award winning actor, late night host. So it's like, you know, my, my safety's Harvard. <laughs> um, and uh, at that point, you know, I don't know who you're, who's your favorite late night host of all, of all time, aside from yours truly, obviously. Uh, all time? I, I was a Leno fan. Really? Yes. Ah! I know. Ah! Breaking my heart. See, I was, I was all about Letterman until later on when he became a grumpy man. But early Letterman, like the Larry Bud Nelman, okay. uh, Rupert's Deli, that was really... You were more sophisticated. Yes. I, that, I, that's I, the sophisticated I, I New York think, taste right there. In, in comedy, yes. I absolutely. know. Okay, that's fair. The comedians wanted to do Leno because of the numbers, and it was an easy interview, but the comedians all respected Dave. That was kind of the, mm -hmm. the rule. Until, again, later on, he's totally changed. So early Letterman. Um, and I used to watch it every day. My dad would tape it and put it on VHS, and of course, fast forward the parts that we couldn't watch. And I always just thought, wow, this is something really cool. Um, that I'd love to be a part of. And, and uh, I did stand up for a long time. I always knew I wanted to entertain people. And when I saw people like Nick DiPaolo do stand up, you know, I'd get kind of, I'd feel bad about myself because I would say, I'm never going to be as good as Nick DiPaolo. I'm a good stand up comedian, but a lot of the things I wanted to do, like impressions, sketches, didn't work on stage. And of course, acting, I couldn't do stand, I couldn't incorporate a lot of comedy. Not, writers don't typically like you ad libbing, if people don't know out there. Um, so this, really what I'm doing now is what I've always wanted to do. We can incorporate all of it. This is what I've always wanted to do. And it's not really a, con it is a right-leaning show, but it, it's really just a late-night show where conservatives don't need to fear being sucker-punched. You, know, you, you have a bit of a harder job than I do, to be honest with you, because I get to be a political pundit who's occasionally funny. But when you're in the comedic space, when people expect you to be funny all the time, yeah. then your hit rate had better be really incredibly high. Do you feel a lot of pressure? Yes. Having to be funny? Yeah, I do. And I, feel, I feel, you know, and I feel a lot of pressure, not because it's like, oh, I better be funny or it'll, it'll hurt my ego. You know, when, you know this, when you do these live shows, I mean, I had a guy come up and give me his Navy Cross. Yep. And he said, I had such bad PTSD and I was suicidal. He said, watching your show is what kept me sane because I was able to sort of consume the news. I was able to digest it, but I didn't want to kill myself. You know, we, want, we don't want to be the only show people watch. We, we're, we do more sourcing, I think, than anyone. Honestly, we, 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 have, we have a rule. We have to have two completely unbiased sources for every claim that we make. We put them on air you, or a leftist source. 
So as a matter of fact, sometimes we'll actually have a source from Daily Wire, and I'll be like, we can't use, da we can't use Daily Wire because mm -hmm. we'll say, Daily Wire is bullcrap. So we go to the PubMed study, which you guys just sort of, right. you know, obviously we're summarizing. Uh, but unfortunately, people say it's not legitimate because, you know, your shekels and all that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I feel a, a tremendous responsibility if people are choosing Louder with Crowder to, to be their last show before their head hits the pillow. I, I've always said this to people who work for me. I go, listen. They don't know the last show. Assume that everyone walking in is walking in for the first time and they've never seen your prior performances and earn it. Earn their dollar, earn their laugh every single time. That's how I've tried to approach it. And um, it really comes, the pressure comes from more of a sense of responsibility in realizing how much this means to, to other people, which that's something I wasn't ready for. Honestly, just doing, when I was just doing stand-up in smoker clubs where drunks were mad at you or doing open mics, you didn't expect someone would come up and say, hey, I didn't kill myself because of your show. And I, this is something I know you've, You've, you've touched on, I think we've sort of struck a chord in, in culture right now. We hear people are othered all the time. There is no group out there right now who have been othered more than anyone under the age of 35 who's right-leaning mm -hmm. for a long time. They feel really isolated. They feel really alone. And so, obviously, our show is a comedy show, and yours is more, like you said, sort of political punditry. Is that the yeah, word? I think that'd be fair, yeah. Commentary. Um, brilliant commentary. Uh, it, it really does make people feel less alone, and it means a lot to them. So that's where the pressure comes from. Well, let's talk a little bit about what your routine I'm is. I'm going to move these books because my mug is too girthy, and so it's, it's wow. running into them. But wow. yes, continue. But let's talk a little bit about your sort of routine getting ready for the show. Because I have my routine. I get ready for it for, you know, because I'm in the news cycle all day long. It doesn't yeah. take me that long to actually prep for the show because... I'm in the news cycle. I know what all the news stories are. I know what all the clips are going to be. But for you, you right. do the you do the once a week three hour show, which is the the big extravaganza. No, it's not. It's 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 a one hour and fifteen minutes. Yeah, okay. three hours when it used to be on radio. But Got it's, it. it's okay. a little longer than the Daily Show. Okay, yeah. so how often is so the Daily Show is behind it's, the paywall over at CRTV? It's about a forty four minute clock like traditional shows, mm -hmm. and then on uh, on Thursday we do one extra guest. Right, and but the amount of the amount of time that you put into these shows is just extraordinary. So what what is yeah. the organization like for these shows? So well, to give you an idea, you know, I'm up four thirty or five, uh, and uh, I'm working by 5.30, writing the jokes, writing the pitches. Because if I write 20 jokes, maybe two will work. And uh, we have a couple other people now who help with some jokes. Owen Benjamin comes in hourly and is really helpful, but really for the first, for the first well, three years we did it on radio, and then The Daily Show was just me. And now Brodigan helps a lot. He's a brilliant joke writer who writes for the website. Um, and then we go and we do the pitch meeting. So I'll put in a bunch of material before the actual pitch meeting occurs, which will occur at around 8.30 in the morning. They go in add some of their ideas or see how they're going to delegate the tasks because we'll typically have like two sketches, three or four photoshops uh, as far as original comedy bits and then some punchlines. And then we do a dive-in segment or meet segment. Everyone has a different term for it nowadays uh, where we're kind of staking out one topic. That's what usually goes to YouTube. That's the clip people see who aren't Mug Club members. And with that, that's where we go, okay, for, we, have a, we have a beginning, middle, and end in a self-encapsulated segment that people can digest. And whether it's taking on the top five AR-15 myths you know, of that day or it's taking on, doing a rebuttal to whoever, Vox or Young Turks, we have to be really, really meticulous about our research because we are, we're actually held to a higher standard Funny enough, as comedians, because I think the John Stewart comedian hat on, journalist hat off, you know, uh, actually kind of gave us less leeway on the right, uh, even though they give it to everyone on the left. Though so Michelle Wolf's show got canceled. Did right. you hear about that? I did. Oh my gosh. Did, who, who decided that was a good idea? Who did? I have no idea. Michelle Wolf's immediate relatives, apparently, because that <laughs> thing was just an abomination. So I, I, I want to ask you in a second about. You know, the relationship between comedy and madness. But first, let's talk about your impending death. So September is National Life Insurance Awareness Month. <laughs> if you listen to this show a lot, you've heard me talk about how important life insurance is. Here's the thing. 40% of Americans still do not have life insurance. So if anything were to happen to you, your family, 
would be left bereft. They'd have to pay for your coffin, but they're poor because you were too stupid to get life insurance. These days, there's not an excuse for not having life insurance. Life insurance rates are at a 20-year low, and it is easier than ever to get life insurance, especially if you use Policy Genius. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance online in just two minutes. You can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. And when you compare those quotes, you save money. It is indeed that simple. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance, placed over $20 billion in coverage. They don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance and renter's insurance and health insurance as well. If you care about it, they can cover it. So if you're looking for a good reason to buy life insurance, there are three. It's Life Insurance Awareness Month. It rates are at 20 or low. And Policy Genius makes it really easy for you to get that right policy for you. Go to policygenius.com, get those quotes, apply in minutes. I know that Stephen's wife has already taken out a life insurance policy on his life worth at least $25. So that makes his life really, I mean, every minute is just a fragile balance. But you can do the whole thing for yourself right now over at Policy Genius. It's the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. I've been meaning to do this the whole time you're doing that ad, and I didn't want to screw it up for you. So okay. there we go. Well, that, Are these space heaters made to look like lights? I have no idea. It's very bizarre. You think I designed my own sets? The decorative choices that we make sometimes. People who work for me, dude. Like you think I do this? But it is. Think about this about the choices. Like you've seen like the wooden pallets a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, it seems really. It just seems very organic. I'm like, who has a space with these? <laughs> Same thing, you know, sometimes I sit there, I'm going like, these are... Like well, what we really do is if we have a guest we really don't like, then we, after the show, we strap them down, we shine it really bright in their face. Yes. And then we just beat them. Are those incandescents or are they LEDs to look like incandescents? I, do I, know? I, I don't know. I don't know. I actually I, I like those bulbs. They, but I do have an insurance question for you after the show. No joke. My oh, wife okay. actually sent me because as celebrities, <laughs> you know, it's a whole different, it's a whole different ball oh, yeah. game. Oh, yeah. I had Especially someone, you because you get death threats and yes, all the rest of it. Exactly. It's so, been very difficult. I wanna, so let's, let's talk about the death threats and all that. Yeah. Actually, this is a good transition. So let's talk about the, the fact that you do a lot of really controversial comedy. So where do you draw lines? So you know, yeah. the, there's a lot of talk these days about where comedians ought to draw lines. As you mentioned Owen Benjamin. Owen Benjamin has been taken to task for using the N-word in one of his comedy routines. Yeah. Well, where do you think it's appropriate to draw lines as a comedian? Do you think there should be any lines as a comedian? Obviously, there are certain things that you won't do, even though you're the guy who paints Muhammad with menstrual blood as Bob Ross yes. on camera. Where do you decide where those lines are, and when is it appropriate to cross them? Well, okay, that's a good example, because context is more important than content. Let me, let me, let me preface this with, uh, I, I don't know if it was Phyllis Diller who said this, or it, it might have been Dennis Miller who repeated it. I don't know the original person who, who, uh, to, to whom this quote is attributed. But basically, nothing is off limits except the helpless. So in other words, you don't go down to a you know, special needs baby and ha, unless you're a liberal and you want to abort the Down syndrome baby. Apparently they're okay with that. Uh, so nothing is really off limits. Now, I have limitations as to what I'm comfortable doing. Uh, and everyone will have their own line. As a society, I'm very uncomfortable with saying, this is, these are the list of appropriate words. These are the list of inappropriate words. Like we were just talking about before uh, on DMX. You know, I was listening to his music, the N-word, MF-er, B-word, talking about killing people. And the, do we, do we have to bleep me? Cause, cause, well, we right. can bleep it. Okay. Is the word they bleep, it's the explicit version. That's the one word they eliminate now. I'm going, mm -hmm. really? These are the words that we're picking now? And of course, N-word would be included if you weren't black. So it, it really is a political tool, and I never want to uh, play a role in that game. Uh, that being said, you know, that, I think that's a good example. So you talk about painting Muhammad in menstrual blood. Let's take the context of that. That on its surface sounds bad, granted, right? It sounds pretty bad. <laughs> But uh, BuzzFeed's boldly, the, the Landwell women there, you know, the fat pride feminists, they were painting in menstrual blood. And they had done a lot of, you know, of course, always anti-Christian, anti-sort of Judeo-Christian uh, uh, videos for a long time. So we did a parody, Bob Ross painting Muhammad in menstrual blood. And it got worse when the Bob Ross estate threatened to sue us. And then we drew them <laughs> eating from a pile of, of fecal matter next to Muhammad. And they, we never heard from them again. 
We never heard from him again. What I've always said is, <laughs> we, we're not necessarily a shark in the comedy world, but we can be a puffer fish. Mm. Like, we'll make them wish they picked somebody else. Even if we get <laughs> torn off of every platform, we'll make them wish that they picked somebody else. That's kind of our motto. So con- contextually, when you look at that, you go, oh, this is satire. This is parody. We didn't just do it out of the blue. It was featured on YouTube. The women painting with menstrual blood. We didn't start it. We didn't, we didn't start a trend anew. It was them. So what, they painted first blood, not me. What, 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 what do you make of the of the merger of sort of comedy and politics? So you're a comedian. You label yourself a comedian. Everybody yes. knows you as a comedian. But you do see political actors. President Trump's basically a stand-up comic. Most of what he does is political comedy disguised as politics. And what this means is that he crosses lines that you will cross, but people are not sure what to make of it. Are we supposed to take it like comedy or are we supposed to take it like politics, yeah. is he just being politi- is he being politically incorrect as a comedian, or is he just being a jackass? I think he's thoughtless. I think there's a big difference. I mean, there's there's no question that I know where the line is, and I know how to walk up to it and dance on the line and pull it back. You know, if I cross the line, it's very deliberate. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case with President Donald Trump. I, I genuinely don't think he knows. But I, one thing that I do think is interesting about Donald Trump, because obviously you weren't a big fan of his, and in a lot of ways still aren't, and I was not at all during the primaries. In a lot of ways, I'm, I'm still not. I think we're seeing a transition with President Trump that you've seen with a lot of young conservatives who we reach. I think he was a guy who gave to Democrats for most of his life, who really just, he was doing business in New York. I don't really think he was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat either. No. I think he was whatever he needed to get his latest structure with his name emblazoned across it, erected. Um, And uh, I think what you're seeing now, though, is he's come in, he thought the left would play ball a little bit, and they've been so vicious, which we've known them to be, they've attacked his family personally, where now he's just, okay, screw you, and he's becoming more conservative. I think we're seeing a genuine transition of him becoming more right-wing, kind of like, I hate to say it, but Ebenezer Scrooge later in life. Everyone can kind of be <laughs> redeemed, where he's like, I got it wrong all these years. I think we're seeing that with President Trump. I do think there's some of that. Um, but how do we deal with the fact that he's, you're not toxic in the same way to young people. So young people watch your show because they know you're a comedy guy. Right. They're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt when you say something that's offensive because, as you say, you know what's offensive, you know what's not. And if you're being offensive, it's generally being deliberately offensive right. for comedic purposes. President Trump just sort of says things. Yeah. And he's, sort of, and, and he's very toxic for young people. I mean, there's no question. You look at the polls and among young people, he's wildly unpopular. How do, you, how do we continue to maintain lines or draw lines? What do, what do you think we ought to do Well, there? here's one thing I'll say. He's unpopular in the sense that a lot of your fans uh, and my fans probably aren't huge Trump supporters. That being said, they do like that someone has sort of thrown the gloves off a little bit. So I think it's important to look at how the question is being framed. You know, kind of like when they say, oh, hey, 90% of Americans are pro-abortion. But then when you give them a cutoff or you show them a fetal chart, they got a fetal development chart, that changes, right? So I think with Donald Trump, if you were to ask me, are you a Donald Trump fan? I'd probably answer no. But if you were to ask me, do you think that Donald Trump has done a relatively good job as president? I'd probably say yes. If you would ask me, or pro- I think we would both agree on this, culturally, definitely he's opened the door for uh, conservatives to not be so ashamed of what they are, even though he's not one of them. But I don't think Marco Rubio would have done this. I don't think uh, even Senator Ted Cruz, I don't think uh, Chris Christie obviously would have gone after the media in the same way that Donald Trump has. So I think even though, this thing is squeaking, is this being caught up on your, is it okay? It's totally fine. All right, all right, fine. Uh, I'm just making sure, this. It's the replication, it's not me. I just wanna make sure, hold on. 
You're okay, dude. It's fine. No, no, no. I'm making sure that people know it's not me is my point, I, Ben. This I, is important for me. It's not everything is about you. There you go. You can hear the squeak. It's the chair. Okay. So I think that's what's important about President Donald Trump. I think even though people may not like him, I think a lot of young people are happy to see the burdens, the shackles of political correctness kind of be thrown off, and he has helped pave the way for that. So you live a very high-stress lifestyle, obviously. You do your yeah. show. Uh, you're out in public a lot. A lot of people don't like you. You said that somebody spit in your drink on a plane. Uh, so that <laughs> it's been a party for you. How do you, how do you deal with the stress of that? I mean, I'm... I, I have my own ways of dealing with stress. I go out and I kill a puppy. But what do yes. you do? What, what, what do you oh, do? Well, I'm going to call your stress? sponsor really quickly. What was that? The, 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 the life help? insurance? Yeah. No, no, no. The oh. help. The psychiatric Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do go see a psychologist. Uh, that's, that's a real thing. And I actually had a, a, some good friends who are you know, UFC or former UFC champions. And I used to go see a psychologist when I was, and I didn't get a lot out of it. And the psychologist I go and see is actually a sports psychologist and executive psychologist. It's really more about time management. It's really more about, okay, how are you being disciplined about your rest? You know, I was talking with uh, Dennis Prager about this. You kind of have to fight against your nature. And there is, a lot of comedians are lazy. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I would border on paranoid as far as, we actually just printed out just the jokes that we wrote last, that I wrote last year. And um, not including the research, the auxiliary paper. It was, it was thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages just in jokes for the show. That's including the ones that made it. So it, it genuinely has helped me a lot seeing the right kind of psychologist who's talked about how to schedule your life and taught me to be more disciplined about rest. That's not always feasible, um, but I realized I was running on you know four or five hours of sleep every single night. And they're like, okay, you don't need to shoot for eight or nine, just shoot for seven consistently. Uh, shoot for a few five minute breaks where you can do something that's not work related. Because you know, with what we do, you, you, and, and I'm incredibly grateful, I'm not complaining at all, but with what, with what we do, you're never finished. You just choose to stop. Right. And there's always one more thing. That's right. And that is what's kind of difficult about it. it. Like last night, I was getting back to the hotel. I was taping a PragerU video. I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag. It'll be out on Columbus Day. And uh, some things went late. And I, I, I was just going, there's 50 things I have to do, but I'm just going to choose to stop. That has been uh, a big revelation for me. It's, it's okay to choose to stop at this point. How's your wife deal with all that? So you're, you're married. How long have you been married now? Six years. Okay, so yeah. are kids in, in the foreseeable future here? You know, it's funny that you say that. I would love to be at a point in my life where I could have kids. And the thing is, I've always had to work so much uh, recently. Um, so that's one thing we're definitely working on is finding more balance. So we are, you know, we don't have we don't have the Daily Wire budget. We're not exactly running the Jim Henson budget that you have here in your heat lamps. But, um, you know, getting, you know, getting 16, I would take a 12-hour day most days, you know, and maybe a 10-hour day uh, here or there outside of Sunday. And, and I think I'd have more balanced life. So it, they are in the future, just not right How now. How does your wife deal with all this? I mean, it's... It's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, it, it is hard in my wife. Um... She's very supportive. You know, she did, she worked, uh, she was a, a vice president of a, a contract furniture company. She probably gave you some chairs that don't squeak. Uh, and she uh, left the job and she just kind of, she doesn't work for me or the company full time, but she's really good interpersonally. People love her. So for showing a guest around or if we need to help kind of book some travel, she's been very helpful. And for her, that's been really relieving. Um, just, I think this is with a lot of women. You know, they think they think they have to work their way up, and she did. She worked her way up in a company, but realized that's not really what she wanted to do. It, it is hard on her. Um, it, it's just like probably. Well, your wife is a doctor, obviously. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Yes, so that, that's the rumor. I, and, and a very a very attractive lady. Your wife. You've done very well for yourself. Um, and uh, it, with us, with what we do, because like you said, as disrespectful, my, my show is a, substantially more of a workload to put a daily show like our, a late night show. Yeah, com know? comedy shows have to be written. I yes, mean. and and we do the sketches and the production. Right. You know, it's it's 100%. really difficult. So it's kind of like um, 
We had Brian Shaw, world's strongest man, on the show recently. We had George, Daniel Cormier, current UFC heavyweight, light heavyweight champion. And it really is a partnership where their wives have to support them in a way that's not typical. And um, we kind of, I know some women are going to be furious when they hear this, but it is a volunteer role. But my wife has kind of accepted that, okay, uh, Stephen's going to need a little more support because he doesn't even have, if I don't help him with lunch, he's not going to take 20 minutes to eat. Um, and that comes down to, you know, when I'm done working, listening to her, making sure that her needs are met. That's a really important thing. If we're going to bitch about feminism, then we need to talk about being real men. And that means, yes, I know it sounds namby-pamby, but meeting your wife's needs, making sure that, the, and that's just, that's not just physically and financially we're talking about, spiritually, emotionally, making sure that they feel heard, that they feel safe. Um, so it really has been a, a, a learning process. And I will say that contrary to some people who we know, my wife's a very strong, have you ever met my wife? Sure, yeah. Oh yeah, that's right, you've met my wife, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's a very Several strong times, personality. Yeah. Uh, so for us, there was a lot of clashing early on, as opposed to some friends who were both type B personalities where they never argued. But some of these people just got divorced. I'm like, well, what, what, what happened? They'd never gone to marital counseling. They'd never had a fight. And the first fight was the blowout. Whereas my wife and I, the arc is it was a lot tougher early on, and it got easier. Do you think you've both gotten better at marriage, or you've just yes. rounded off each other's edges a little bit? I think we both, we've both, both. Now I'm, I've been listening to too much DMX. Both. Uh, <laughs> we've both gotten better at marriage and communication, for sure. And, and, and I think a big, a big part of it is is uh, you know really learning that people inherently are selfish. You know, m- men struggle with pornography. Men always have. For women, the pornography is a romantic comedy in The Bachelor, right? If he loves, he'll love me just the way I am. No man loves you just the way you are. He <laughs> loves you. Just he loves you as you are. But there are things he doesn't like about you. Uh, just like you know, a woman won't try to change me. A woman's always going to try to change you. I don't have a problem with it. It means they're trying to better you. Now, if you become the only one that you're working on, if I'm working on me and she's working on me, then that's a problem. When we started our marriage. There was a lot of that. I was the project. You know, I needed a lot of work. And now we've both both worked on ourselves and and learned how to communicate more effectively. And I do think that is something that's really important, you know, um, in high-pressure positions or high-profile positions. People mocked Mike Pence. You know, that's a good example. A lot of people don't understand. For example, if you're alone in a car with a woman who's not your wife, someone can snap a picture and it's a big deal. Even if nothing happened. This is correct. There are certain pressures that come with um, your position, my position, that a lot of people don't. And it's, this isn't the celebrity. Insulating yourself from the possibility of sin is a definite must yes, in, exactly. a, in any position where you are prominent at all. You've got to take the proper precautions. You've yeah. got to determine what is a, a worthy risk and what isn't. And I know this is, what, what's a worthwhile risk for a guy who painted Muhammad in menstrual blood? I got, the irony is not lost on me. But, <laughs> but no, my, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish what we have um, you know, what, what moderate success we have, and I'm grateful for with, without my wife. I have no doubt about that. Okay, so I want to talk to you a little bit about sort of your mental state, and, we'll, and then we'll get into some politics sure. and social media and all, all the rest first of this sponsor. stuff. Correct, dude. I mean, you're really <laughs> catching on. He's a quick learner over here. Whether you're in a cafe or a hotel, we often rely on public Wi-Fi to use the internet on the go, but something as simple as paying your bills online from a Starbucks could leave your data exposed. A hacker could easily intercept your information, stealing passwords, credit card numbers, or the pornography that Stephen was browsing just before the show. It's not just hackers either. Government agencies like the NSA, they're monitoring the entire internet. They could be scooping up your activity. So what can you do to defend yourself? The software I use to protect my online activity from spies and data thieves is ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps. They run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. ExpressVPN secures, anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data, hiding that public IP address. 
Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf on that public Wi-Fi without being snooped on, having my personal data stolen. So check out ExpressVPN. It costs less than seven bucks a month, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you got nothing to lose. To take back that internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months for free, go to expressvpn.com slash Ben. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Ben for three months free with a one-year package. Again, expressvpn.com slash Ben to learn more. The hell uh, are you doing on your iPad, man? Well, I mean, I'm... I'm decrypting all sorts of, of national security secrets. Okay, I don't all right. Know, I'm I think now we're using words that you're like, I saw that I was not watching Transporn. I was certainly not no, watching no, no. Transporn like <laughs> Alex Jones. I was certainly not doing no, that. No, you're watching interdimensional vampire porn. That's correct. In any case, let, let's talk about the fact that you're a crazy person. So as yes. everyone can see, you're a wild man. And, and this is not a, a rip on you. This is just the nature, partly of being in comedy, that most people who are in comedy, yeah. I've never met anybody who is a full-time comedian who doesn't have edges, right? Who, who doesn't have to be a wild man, has to be on all the time. Yeah. So what do you think is the relationship between comedy and mental health, between comedy and being a wild person and having a normal life and still having to be on all the time trying to make people laugh? Gosh, I don't want this to become a Barbara Walters where it becomes this interesting. I'll ask your favorite tweet later. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, with a lisp and a speech impediment. <laughs> favorite tweet. Favorite tweet. How does she get that work? Does anyone else? Does she, I mean, who does she sleep with? Barbara Walters. I mean, not going to go. Apparently, her, when she was young, she was quite the dish, so it's not that gross. You're thinking of old Barbara Walters, young Barbara Walters. Yeah, she probably. had an affair with a, with a sitting U.S. senator from Massachusetts. That's right. Yeah, but that's not how she got the job. So I, I do wonder that's how true. she got the job. You know, I, I can't speak for, for all comedians, but I can speak for myself. Uh, I was I was probably the kind of kid you hated in school. You were probably you're very a jock serious. Throwing people in lockers. No, no, I actually had no athletic ability whatsoever. I was a very huge. late bloomer. Yeah, well, that I didn't actually on my driver's license. I listed myself at uh, six foot, and uh, you know what? No, my senior year of high school, I was six foot one, and I remember competing in judo at 144 pounds. Whoa! And I didn't shave until I was like 20, 21. I just had peach fuzz, and I didn't get chest hair until I was 24. The Crowders are very late bloomers. And the potential for being an angry late bloomer is scary because <laughs> I'm a relative. There's a lot of velocity now, um, but I didn't pay attention at all. Yeah, I hated school. Event. You were just like, there's nothing there, and then all of a sudden, it, all of a sudden, a- yeah, it happened very, very late. Um, think about it. when people. This is one thing that really bothers when we talk about mental health, and I've tried to be forthcoming with a lot of people out there because it seems the only time people talk about it is when it's virtue signaling, you know, and, and Heath Ledger passes away, and it's like everyone's like, ah, me, too. I've just I've struggled with this, but where were you when this didn't happen? Right. You were embarrassed to talk about it. And so I've talked with parents with their kids, and they say, you know, what's, what's the advice you would give to my kids? And I, I've seen them just react horrified where I said, don't go to college if you don't know what you want to do. Take some time, figure it out. Um, when people say, were you ever suicidal? Th- picture this. Someone like myself, sun up at school, staring at a board in a way that I couldn't possibly learn in a socialist province for nine hours. You try to want to wake up the next day. And it wasn't like I, was, I wasn't going to David Carradine myself. It was nothing like that. I just remember there were times in my life in high school where I just thought like, man, I just, I just wish I didn't have to wake up tomorrow in the sense that I just, I hated my life so much. It'd be like me to, saying, you have to coach swimming starting tomorrow morning for the rest of your life. You know, because at that point in your life, high school is everything. You know, grade school and high school, that's all you know. Well, so you was, know I'm not big on men in Speedos, so. Yes, exactly. these arranger panties, get it right. Our I'm men in our, the armed services, they deserve our respect. They deserve our respect, Ben. That's the difference between you and I. You don't have any respect for anybody. The other difference is that I would know that it was me in the end of that sentence, not you and I. What did I, what did I say? Did I, I said say you and I. It was you and me. Go ahead. You and I, I have respect for our men and women in armed services. No, they, 
Mean have respect for okay. Maybe I think you probably probably don't challenge grammar is my space, range your panties are yours. Irregardless and allegedly. Um let's uh There's no such word as irregardless. Go ahead. no, you said supposedly and allegedly. Oh, some you know someone else who we know who used the word irregardless, we both think is very smart. That's where it was. You said supposedly allegedly, which I'll still argue is redundant because I don't think we're getting legal. But give me that one. Okay. But there's someone we both know who we both really respect as smart, and he he said like irregardless four times. Yeah, that's that's it. It's not an accident. When you're sticking the landing like the fourth time, irregardless, <laughs> you're going, okay, man, you think that's a word. So I, was, I, I really did, um, I think a lot of the time, what we see as mental illness uh, uh, or mental affliction is just people process things differently. Because once I went to college, my first semester before I bombed out doing stand-up, I was an A student all of a sudden because I was studying film, I was studying creative arts, um, and I was in my element. And I, I did pretty well pretty quickly in the areas where I was interested in. Uh, in the areas where I was interested. See, I was just redundant there um, because I'm trying to tread lightly here on the, the issue of mental health. So w- with myself, I, I think I've just had to learn um, how I process information and I, I had to get very organized. Uh, when people use this term ADHD, and by the way, I'm totally against obviously drugging up kids and putting them on Ritalin. That being said, I've actually done, you know, not just a questionnaire, but EEG testing, genetic testing, and we've done a lot of, and, and like you're in, the t- you're in the top percent. It's not even close, like super, super severe. And you know, Andrew Breitbart obviously was a yep. prime example of that. There are people, Winston Churchill would have been an example of that. A lot of people are, and you find just as many people, by the way, uh, with ADHD or these in the gutter as you do great world leaders. Almost every great world leader, uh, to some degree or another, was mentally afflicted, whether it was bipolar or ADD, and I don't know what you have. I don't know what it is. The computer wore tennis shoe syndrome. I have no idea. Um, but uh, so I, I think it's important to talk about with people because I think there are a lot of kids out there who who um, think there's something wrong with them, and there's, there's really not. There's a lot wrong with our public education system today. There's a lot wrong with the way we raise young men. There's a lot wrong uh, with the way we discuss mental health as a society, but a lot of the time there's, there's nothing wrong with these people. I, I totally agree with a lot of that, and mental illness runs in my family as well, so I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. We actually didn't get the full chronology of how you got from a, a socialist province in Canada where you wanted to kill yourself in a, in a classroom <laughs> to you living in Texas and making well, I didn't want to kill myself. I was hoping I would like get hit by a car. Like I, but I was actually hit by a car once, and I was like, oh. No, I got to go back to school the next day. It, I didn't get a week it, off. It, was, it wasn't as good as you thought it would be. It wasn't as good as I thought it would be. <laughs> it was a real letdown. It was, it was a, a letdown by a rude French Canadian. They're mean drivers. Have you ever been to Montreal? Uh, yes, actually. They will speed up to hit you. They're very rude. They're very skilled drivers, like in Europe, but they're very mean drivers. So, um, yeah, I was born in Detroit, which like I've always said, you can just annex and give to Canada, really. Um, and then raised in Montreal. My mom was French Canadian, was born and raised in Quebec, lived there from three to 18. And as soon as I was able to you know, get to the States, uh, I was doing uh, some films and stand-up and touring. I, I did it immediately. So how was stand-up for you? Because you, you still do some stand-up, but not, as, not nearly as I much as you used to. I don't have the time as much. Uh, when we, if we do a show, live show, it's a full show. You have to bring in the whole team. I just did it recently at a YAF. Actually, we both did that weekend. And I, right. You, know, you yeah. kind of spoke, and then I kind of do like 25 minutes of stand-up, and then do, it's like a hybrid between that and keynote. I'm still feeling my way around with it. But um, yeah, stand-up starting off was, um, you know, I was just talking about this yesterday with Dennis Prager. You know, Stephen Harper was Canada's Ronald Reagan. Yep. And I remember being at an open The first time night. I met Stephen Harper, I asked him if he, Barack Obama was president, I asked him if it was possible he would invade. 
But that's in any case, yeah. go ahead. Wouldn't be a very long invasion, right? He Just said. Maybe. He asked me if he said. He said, "Doesn't that make you a traitor?" I said, "Not if you win." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so that makes you a traitor. Correct. Uh, when you're, if you're rolling the dice on that, if you're going to look at the statistical likelihood, you know, it's just a guy in a diesel plane with a shotgun. <laughs> it's not going to do very well. Um, but uh, so I remember an open mic night when I was starting out doing stand-up. It was when he had gotten uh, elected, and all the comedians were, were bitching and moaning about Stephen Harper getting elected. And now you have people like my friend Mike Ward, who back then I'm sure would have been a liberal, uh, are now being put before human rights tribunals for speech for an unpo- for unpopular jokes. Have you had him on your show at all? Mike no, Ward? not yet. No. Do you, know his, do you know what his joke was? His joke was, uh, and it was in French, so I'm, I'm, something might be lost in translation. There was a, like a kid who did, had a make-a-wish in Canada, was their equivalent, and his make-a-wish was to be on Canadian Idol. So here's the thing. I guess it turned out the kid wasn't as terminally ill because he's still alive, and he was really bad. He was a really bad singer. And so the guy, this guy's bit, Mike Ward, was saying, you know, everyone was behind him, and this was great. He said, but now he just won't die. That was his joke. <laughs> it's a joke, obviously. Uh, and uh, he was put before Human Rights Tribunal for $50,000 and lost, and now he's in an appeal. So a lot of these comedians, I remember back then thinking, you idiots, do you understand that there's only one political party in this country? Well, two, technically, there's because it's a parliamentary system, but the NDP is just super far-left liberal. There's a liberal and NDP. Um, sorry, we're getting to the minutia of Canada. Nobody cares about. The judges still wear funny wigs sometimes. But the point is, uh, I remember they had, they had no, they couldn't realize at all. Like Back then, they wouldn't even be able to comprehend a Jordan Peterson, this compulsion of language. Uh, and, and I remember at that open mic night going, wow, these people have no idea what's coming. They have no idea that even if they're pro-abortion, even if they want to smoke weed, uh, the flip side of the coin of Stephen Harper, who also, by the way, helped prevent the housing crisis in Canada, um, who, who actually helped the middle class do pretty well, whereas here they ended up footing the bill under Barack Obama for years. Canada actually, for the first time, I think, was higher in the Economic Freedom Index. But the freedom of speech, it's not a constitutionally enshrined right. And for me, doing stand-up early on, I just I, I wasn't really super political but I, I, I felt uh, as though I had to speak. I felt as though I had to argue with every single comedian. Would, oh, George Bush sucks. And they would, at that point, I was like, what? John Kerry? John Edwards? Do you have any idea the alternative in places like Canada? These people do want, they, they want to jail you for speech. And I felt like Chicken Little and no one was listening. But now people are, unfortunately. And I think, unfor- unfortunately, because this Trudeau guy, who's a national embarrassment, if they legalize Handsome weed, Bernie. Yes. Handsome Bernie Sanders. I, 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 handsome I mean, you know, pretty would be the word I would use. I mean, I bet you if you looked at that man's free testosterone count, it would be non-existent. <laughs> um, and uh, have you ever seen his wife singing at the podium? No. Oh, my gosh. I'll need, I'll need to show it to you afterwards. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a national embarrassment. Like, it is so viral in Canada. My French-Canadian family, who don't speak English, played this for me when they were visiting. But um, I do think that if he legalizes weed, unfortunately, he'll, just, he'll win again because they'll be like, yeah, he got his weed, while people are getting jailed for saying, you know, offensive jokes, and that scares me. So you went to college in the United States or in Canada? Canada. And then, okay, and then, you, and then you started doing stand-up. How'd you end up in the United States? Why would uh, we let you in? Well, I was born in Detroit. Right, so, okay. Yeah, so, so dual, you're an American so dual citizen, citizen. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I've talked about this too, a big part of So you're of eligible reason. for the presidency, unlike Ted Cruz. Right, yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. People always get that wrong, where they, they're like, ah, oh, he's ineligible. Um, but you're not, right? Is that, is that something you plan on doing ever running for president? Running for president? Yeah. sounds like a terrible job. Really? Watching, watching these people, first of all, the quarters in the West Wing are... are when Trump whined about like, the state of the West Wing, yeah. have you ever been in there? It's, it's no. really... They so, offered us a tour when we did the Change My Mind and we didn't have time. Yeah, it's, it's shockingly small. 
Like well, really? the, the first time I heard Trump complain about the West Wing, I was like, what a jackass. Like complaining about the West Wing means the people's house. And then I went through, I'm like, wow, this is like originally inhabited by munchkins, yeah. like by actual tiny people. <laughs> like, like, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a big human being. And I was like right. ducking to get through doorways and stuff. It's like going through one of the rooms that's not, that's not been remodeled at the Waldorf. You're yeah, like, oh, that, this, is, this is just terrible. That's exactly right. It's like that scene from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where they start off at one end of the room. And by the time you get to the other end of the room, everybody's sort of crouching down. And yeah. then Trump's a big dude. So I imagine he actually has to Crisco himself up and just wet himself through yeah. doorways to get get around well, them. At that point, the Crisco is incidental. It's not to wedge himself through the doorway. There's a multitude <laughs> of uses. <laughs> but in any case, so, so sorry, to get back to your story, you come yeah. to the United States. You're yeah. from Detroit. How did you get back in? I was just, so I was just doing stand-up. And funny enough uh, that, if, that you bring this up, my first manager was a guy named Tony Camacho who was black in New York. And the reason he brought me on as a client was because I ended my whole stand-up set on the N-word. I ended it, and word. thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And it was actually a bit, it wouldn't work now to English, but it was about French Canadians who would rap, and you would actually hear French rap songs with English cuss words, including the N-word. And you would hear it on the radio. So it would be a bunch of friends and then just N-bomb. And so it killed in Canada. And he said, man, it t- takes a lot of guts for a, a, a very white guy like yourself to do that, and I really enjoyed the bit. And he would not be a conservative at all. Uh, we used to, but he, you know, he, he was a Christian guy, family values guy. He was a conservative who didn't realize it. So he brought me to the States and I just started doing, you know, stand up some, some really crappy clubs, but got some pilots with MTV and then got some films and commercials. And that took me full circle. So I was in LA and back in New York and LA and New York again. Um, yeah, it was, it was always just stand up and acting. And then how'd you get on like Fox News? I mean, how do you go from stand up and acting to being well, you, you on know Fox that News? story because you negotiate. I do, but, but my audience covers. doesn't. Yeah. So. Um, how did, did that start? You know, I started doing YouTube videos. You know what? Okay, so that's, this, is, this is a part that a lot of people don't know. So uh, there were no conservatives on YouTube. My brother and I had done some YouTube videos that had gone viral early on, like 2006. There, there was a really bad, I don't know if you remember, there was a rash of bad impression videos on YouTube early on. Like 101 impressions in three minutes. And it's just some guy doing the Family Guy cast and Kermit the Frog. And I was like, this is terrible. So we did a YouTube video where it was called Best Impressions Ever, all caps. And it was me doing really bad impressions. My brother was my Ed McMahon laughing. And the reason it went viral was because in the comments section, you had people who were like, this is, these are the worst impressions ever. You suck. You know, go kill yourself. Then you had people saying, this is satire. You don't get it. Go kill yourselves. Then you had some people saying, no, actually, these are really good impressions. You guys are wrong. And then you had some people who just thought, got the joke, but didn't think it was funny. Anyway, so everyone just started fighting. And we learned, wow, this is how you make something go viral is you get something that strikes a chord. Uh, but I didn't do anything politically uh, until, uh, I would say, 2008, 2009. And at that point, I had just finished filming. Uh, uh, doing a, a Christian film in San Diego. And I had done some episodes actually on an ABC family show where that was an experience where I was actually talking with a guy on set about South Park. And he was talking about how much he liked it. And he, he said some things that made me think he was conservative, like in on the gag. But then I just realized he didn't get the satire. And he told on me to the director. Where I was like, yeah, I, know, I love the way they lampoon the left liberals. And he's like, what are you talking about, bro? You don't get it. I'm like, no, no. Like Trey and Matt, they were speaking at you. Like they can't stand liberals. And he was like, no, man. I don't think you know what you're talking about. And it was, I was supposed to have a multi-series arc. The character, I think, was supposed to be named Jace. And instead, it was just like drunken frat guy number two. And I was like in two episodes. So I learned very early on. So after this, my parents said, okay, um, you, get, you better have to get a job. And I never, I, I never had, had to work a job before uh, if I was going back to stay home. And really, I was going back to stay home because I was burnt out. And I said, okay, how about this? I'm going to, for the next six months, treat YouTube like a full-time job. I'm going to upload a video every week, just put up a blue bedsheet on the wall, and I actually messaged people every single day for six hours a day saying, hey, you might want to check out my channel and responding. And that's how I got the first 10,000 subscribers. The first semi-viral video was Crazy Pete's Abortion Barn, 
Ray, this one. I actually read from the Planned Parenthood website because they sounded like a used car salesman. And that was when I learned early on, if I just actually read Planned Parenthood's transcript effectively, it doesn't matter how offensive I am as a used car salesman selling abortions at half price. Um, and then the Quran challenge and things sort of became viral. And then Andrew, I had heard Andrew Breitbart on the Dennis Miller show and just called him. And you know, Andrew, he spoke with me for like yep. 30 minutes. So he put up some of my old stand-up and people liked it. So I started writing articles. PJTV came along and I started working with them. And then Fox News... Uh, when I was working here at PJTV in Los Angeles, they said, uh, hey, do you want to come appear on our, on our network? And I said, sure. And I didn't know, by the way, but I, we can talk about it now, but uh, I didn't know about the rivalry between O'Reilly and Hannity. So Hannity called, and I said yes, and then the O'Reilly people called right afterward, and I said yes. And then they called back and said, well, hold on a second, we didn't know you were doing Hannity. You have to pick one. We're the bigger show. And I said, well, I gave him my word, and then I was persona non grata. With, yeah, uh, this, is, this is we all those of us who work in the industry at this yeah. time remember it was the world's biggest high it school. Was, it was so terrible. So um, what happened was I think they brought me in to lose because I was on a debate when they first brought me in, and I think it surprised a lot of people that I did relatively well. I think they weren't used to sort of someone who was a little bit quicker as a comedian. It, it's kind of just like fighting someone who's unorthodox. And then they brought me back and brought me back, and then uh, when I started appearing on other news networks. They didn't really know what they wanted to do with me. They just knew they didn't want anyone else to have me. So that's what they were paying for back then was exclusivity. And uh, it was four and a half years of my life. I'm very grateful for the experience, but I'm, I'm very grateful now to be doing what I, what I want to be doing and to not have the muzzle on. Well, I'm definitely going to ask you about sort of where your political perspective was formed and also you know, the, the areas of your career where you've gone serious, mainly the, the change my mind stuff. So I'm going to ask you about all that in just one second. First, let's talk about jeans, because this dude right here doesn't have any pants, but he could use some pants, because come the hell on, it's just terrible in every possible way. If you are looking for quality jeans that look great, fit great, feel great, and used to cost you hundreds of bucks, Mott & Bow has permanently changed the game with $200 designer jeans for half the price. Introducing MottenBow.com, where you can get the most comfortable premium jeans you will ever, ever wear for half of what you would pay elsewhere for AG or 7 jeans. I mean, these are luxury jeans for 100 bucks. You can only get them at MottenBow.com. I wear jeans every day. MottenBow is fantastic. Most comfortable because they use the best in-comfort technology. They've got dynamic stretch premium because they only source their denim from two of the most well-respected denim mills on planet Earth. To make sure that your jeans fit you perfectly, they have an at-home try-on program as well. You request a second pair with your order, you try on both, you keep one, you send back the other one in the same box with the prepaid label. These are $200 designer jeans for half the price. Plus, their September savings event means that you save 20% on everything at mottandbow.com slash Ben. That's M-O-T-T and B-O-W dot com slash Ben for 20% off everything. This is their best deal anywhere. It is only available for the month of September. So now's the time to do it. Save 20% during Mott and Bo's September savings event at mottandbow.com slash Ben. Again, that's mottandbow.com slash Ben. Don't get caught without pants like this gentleman who's sitting right here in front of me. Horrifying everyone with his manly legs. Instead, go check out mottandbow.com slash Ben. Save 20% during their September savings event. Okay. It so, actually sounds like a good deal, actually. It's it, very hard for me to get jeans because I have a pretty small waist, but a huge ass. <laughs> so it's, it's I wasn't going to mention it, I but now, buy, like, now that you've been there. Pants, my waist is 33, but I have to buy like 36 or 38 pants because they're made for men without legs. Well, I mean... Which, you as know, you can clearly see, is not a problem. Wow. You know, if... <laughs> If I like it, I should have put a ring on it, I suppose. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> Who says I'm not wearing a second ring? Well, that's... Um, Continue with your question <laughs> about my worldview. Good family values okay, so show. Wow, wow. So let, let's talk about where your values came from, those solid family values that we've yeah. been discussing right here. So you grew up in Canada, which is socialist America. Where Quebec what, specifically. Quebec. So where, where did your 
conservative values come from? So I was always, um, you, you know, as a Christian family. Now, you're, but you're never just born a Christian. You have to decide at some point. Just I would assume it's probably the same. I mean, you're culturally Jewish or you're ethnic. But you got to buy in at a certain point, point, or you're going to buy out. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. At some point, you either say this is what I believe or not. And the same thing with uh, with, with being a, a Christian. So I, I was raised in a Christian household, though, and then I started working really young. And so my dad taught me about taxes. It was it was really that simple. And I, I found that almost everyone I really liked or enjoyed later on in life I found was a conservative, like John Stossel. I used to wait for his give me a break segments af- after uh, TGIF in 2020, um, like he, where he would just, just take a steaming one. He'd just drop it all over something like New York liberals. And I didn't even know what a liberal or conservative was as a kid, but he'd give me a break. You know, like he talked to this head of Navajo Nation, the white man forces me to live this way. And he said, but you're wearing jeans. And as a kid, I was like, I want to be this guy. Uh, <laughs> if I can merge him and David Letterman. So I... I Inherently, I, I was always kind of a, an individualist, um, and I had a, just like Woody Allen, I had a, I had a general problem with authority. So uh, I think that just sort of culminated in, in, in what you see before you, what so you how, ogle before you. How, how did you decide to, your, your show is really split in an interesting way. So mine is based on serious material, and then I'll stray every so often and make yeah. a joke or do a weird impression that's usually pretty bad. But for you, because... I appreciate that. <laughs> First part of getting help is admitting you have a problem. Well, that's, they're not all that bad. They're not all that they're bad. They're not all that bad. They're, my they're, Trump they're, sucks. My Obama they're, is okay. My, okay. They're not all that bad. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Being imitated to your face is so... It's so actually, ter- the thing is, it's actually, the imitations of you are really actually not very insulting. No, they're it's not. It's not like Chank Uyghur, no, uh, did, which you saw when I actually invaded Chank's panel as Chank. It's like you're like I don't I don't know which one to shoot because <laughs> it's like we Spider-Man the Spider-Man meme. Yes, we're both the same. <laughs> there was a point in there where I actually sat down and he was going okay, and I go okay, <laughs> and his own audience started laughing at him. But the stuff with you is you just you know you look young, you have a bit of a Midwestern sound, and you speak quickly. Yeah. Um, so uh, sorry, your question. So the question was, how do you? When do you decide to stray into serious territory? So the change your mind stuff has become extraordinarily memeable. So we've all seen the memes. Yeah. Uh, various pe- our own company has taken me, put me behind that desk. Of that, that picture of you behind the desk with your feet up, with the with the change my mind about some weird thing. Yeah. And PewDiePie has made fun of it. Like like yes. legitimately, everybody has made fun of it. How did you? Where did you come up with that idea? Number one and number two. That's a pretty serious segment. There's there's not yeah. a ton of humor in that. When did you decide that you were going to do kind of more serious material along those lines? Well, I you know it's the show imitated always... by others, imitated by others, yeah, but never yes, duplicated. Yeah, yes, yes, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, it, it's always been a mix. You know, and that was one thing I hate. You know, a lot of people, I don't want to be put in a box because the truth is people come to the show to laugh, to be entertained. But people also really enjoy. I mean, I, our rule on our show is I tell people, if, you're, if we are creating content or if I create content that does not meet this criteria, cut it. Tell me to cut it. It either has to be, well, first off, it always has to be entertaining. And it either has to be informative or enlightening. And informative means, you know, we're breaking news like the people who wanted to stab uh, supporters at the <laughs> University of Utah. Remember that call when I told them, like, hey, listen, they, we, they handed out a knife to us, and they're handing out, you were like, they're, they're handing out ice picks? <laughs> yes, Ben. <laughs> like, I could talk. And your security team were like, well, what do you have? Like, here's the footage. They're like, oh, my God. And that guy from Nightline who was following you, no interest in the story at all. Like, yeah, they Terry handed Moran. us a knife and ice picks. We had to deal with the FBI. So it's always been a mix. I actually think our show has led to more uh, arrests or charges than any other conservative program accidentally. Because of the research that we've done, we've just kind of fallen into because we stay in character. Um, so change my mind, though. You know what's funny? That's basically, I was turned down by every major conservative publisher, uh, I think. There might be one or two out there who didn't. When I pitched a book, and back then it wasn't called Change My Mind, but it's what, it's what has become Change My Mind. And they, I remember the, the words actually being spoken. 
conservatives don't buy comedy, they don't buy funny books, they buy Obama doomsday books at this point. I think at that point, the book, uh, Obama, the Obama Blueprint, was like really big. So that's what people really wanted to do. And it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I don't know if there's anything wrong with the book. I'm not insulting the book. It just it wasn't changed my mind. And uh, so if one thing, too, you know, you're very sharp, obviously. You're very, you're very smart. Uh, and it's, it's formidable for people to watch you in a debate. But I know that a lot of people can watch you. Or even sometimes myself, I've had people say, well, I, I can't do that. And I go, hold on a second. Actually, yeah, you can, particularly when it comes to a conversation with somebody whose mind can be changed. Most people who are left don't, they, they haven't yet rationalized their positions. Now, it is also very different when you have a microphone and a stage, and I do, or we're on cable news. It's a different dynamic. And I remember always saying, man, I just wish that we could sort of capture these conversations that we have with people, you know, when I get, whether I'm getting my hair cut or I'm in an Uber, I'll have these conversations with people. And uh, it be completely unedited so that people could see it's not that hard to do. That almost anyone can do it. You don't have to win an argument. You just have to know how to rationalize your position. That's really what it stemmed from. And it just happened to, to strike a chord. It's the exact opposite of everything we've been taught in media. And I know in podcasting, though, there's this pride in like, we don't have any kind of prep or show map or anything. And they just, but then they go on four-hour rabbit trails, you know, about duck genitalia or whatever the hell it is. We pick a topic and we stick to the topic and we make sure that people rationalize their positions. So there is a direction with it. It's not completely random and haphazard, but it's, it's very genuine. And I think um, that a lot of people just appreciated uh, how it was antithetical to what we've known media. I, I couldn't tell you exactly why it's worked as well as it has, honestly. That's my hypothesis. So you know, I think both you and I have been in a space where we've both been very irritated by the sort of stodginess of conservative media, by the fact that so much of conservative yes. media seems stuck in a rut, unwilling to kind of move out of that rut. What do you think that rut is? How do we define it? How do, how do you break out of it? How, how do you think that the conservative movement can move past its image of stodgy? Because I mean, you know me. I'm about as stodgy a human being as it's possible to be. I listen to classical music. I go to synagogue on a regular basis. I go home to my wife and Wait, my two kids. Is that stodgy synagogue? Uh, apparently. I mean, I mean, we, we, when we're not planning world domination, you, you it's pretty stodgy. If your last name weren't Shapiro, that would sound incredibly anti-Semitic. What? The, 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 <laughs> I would just say synagogue is so stodgy. I hate those synagogue attendees. Well, I mean, I don't think you go there for parties. I mean, it's not like there are raves going <laughs> yeah, on at the synagogue. It's, it's not just a thing. bunch of glow sticks on a, on a rabbi. But by the same token, obviously, the conservative movement has, it feels yes. either stodgy or provocateurish. Those are the only two, yeah. those are the only two medium in which people, te- media in which people tend to work, right? You've got like the, the Milo Yiannopoulos, I'm just going to say stuff to say stuff and piss people off. Yeah. And then you've got the Paul Ryan, let me wonk you to death. Right. How does conservatism find a, a middle ground that actually appeals to a broader swath of people? Well, first off, I know that you really hate the sort of the, the provocateurship, if that's the word, just for the sake of it. And I appreciate that you've delineated between what we do and people who just go out there and say something you know, racist. I, I appreciate that because I know, listen, we could get in hot water and I know that you know our heart and where we come from. And, and our goal is never to actually just uh, to, to denigrate people or even, even necessarily ideas. Oh, some of them, like Bernie Sanders, that's fine. Uh, but um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, here, here's the solution. What you're doing. And what I'm doing, and I think this will actually be the closing segment uh, uh, on, on this week's show, this Thursday. I've always, we see people all the time say, won't somebody do something? I mean, how many rooms did we sit in with these underground organizations? I think the cat's out of the bag with that one. People were like, Where, where's the conservative late night? You know, where's the answer to the Daily Show? And I was at Fox pitching the show that I'm doing for day in and out for four and a half years. And them just saying, no, it's not going to work. They paired me up with a guy who, who was like... He was like 90 years old with four-year-old kids. Like, that's Old Testament Abraham. I don't even know how that happens. <laughs> um, I remember it was so bizarre. And he like had these ideas for like a monkey on roller skates. And what it is is just people, and this is true. I know it sounds random. I'm trying to piece all together in my time there. People say, well, why, isn't some, why don't we have this? Isn't someone going to do something? 
Just be the guy who does something. <coughs> We're doing the show that we wish ex- we wished had existed. People told me there was no market for it. Uh, I'm very grateful for the market that there there is for it. And every time we gain a new subscriber or a new Mug Club uh, uh, member, we've raised the ceiling. And we're inc- we really are just incredibly grateful. I think there are two ways to handle success: to either become, uh, to either exalt yourself, or to feel genuinely humbled by the responsibility of how much it means to people. And and that's honestly how, like when I got off stage at SMU. Uh, I remember walking into the bathroom and like like crying for a little bit because for me as a kid stand up that was kind of a dream come true to have you know twenty seven hundred people roaring and cheering like for someone else it didn't mean a whole lot but for me that was something that I thought about ever since I was a kid and you go oh what what do I do from from here you know how do I hang on to this and this also and some of these people were crying because you know they had left the they had left Islam and now they couldn't talk with their parents or giving me their Navy Cross um, so I, I, it's just be the person who does something. We're doing the show that we wanted to do. And I know that you, for a long time, listen, you did a lot of AM radio, and you, you appeared on a lot we of... Both, still we both slogged in, yes. in, in a lot of trenches. But you finally just... I know that you were going, why doesn't somebody do something? I know behind closed doors, sometimes people who are more high profile, respectfully, you think they're idiots. Uh, and... Uh, I know that you're like, man, I'm 10 times smarter than that guy. And I was going, yeah, you, you, you are, but this is just the way the system works right now. And now you're doing it. And now we're doing it. So I, I just think for people, how does it change? It changes with what we're doing, and hopefully more people out there are doing it. Um, I, you know, I don't see many Ben Shapiros on the horizon. There are a lot of people who are young and smart. There are, there's no one else out there as far as young comedians. That's what kind of worries me. For me to retire, I would love to pass that torch to somebody. There's just, it's going to be 10 years before sort of someone's coming well, up. Well, how old are you now? 31, but I, I, can't, I can't do this for that long. Oh, really? Okay, so how, how long do you think you're... I, 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 would love, I would love to be able to train someone up, you know, within 10 years and, and have someone else be doing the Retire at 41? Not retire, but be able to, you know, be able to help the next young student. What's your dream then? So, like, like, you just decide not to do this as often, or you I, do it occasionally, well, or what? again, because I was pitching this show to, like, I'm sure you probably pitched books that got turned down. Oh, Many you know, times. All your, all your, Many you, times. You were getting published at, what, seven years old? And 19, but yeah. Okay, yeah. But you didn't look a day past 14, so it was, that's, you know, that's what really counts. But um, I would love to be the person who said to a young Steven Crowder, this will never work. Change My Mind is not a book that people want. Late night comedy is not something that conservatives want. I would love to be the guy who goes, okay, kid, you're, you're talented. Uh, let's see how hard you work at it. And let me you know, be, be a wind uh, in your sails here. Um, I'd love to be able to do that eventually. You know, it's, it's really not about myself because if it dies with me, then it's all for, for nothing. Unfortunately, there aren't many conservative uh, I don't even say comedians, but entertainers out there, you know, because the system kind of, like you said, it breeds sort of young um, CNN Crossfire era Tucker Carlson lookalikes when you go to a lot of these conventions. And that's changing now. That's changing a lot. You're seeing a very, uh, you're seeing a much more diverse uh, uh, group of people like when I went to speak at YAF. You're seeing a lot of alternative people, you know, people there with tattoos and mohawks. You're seeing a lot of people who are not afraid to at least, ex- to at least explore their options. So, that's what's important. I mean, I would really love to see some more people coming up. You know, it's they've got to earn it. They've got to earn is, it, though. I think this is right. I mean, there, there's a cultivated skill set. And I've seen it even with you because I've known you long enough. I mean, I've known you for a decade. So I've seen how even in the time we've known each other, your comedy has really progressed to the point where, I mean, you were always good, but now you're just terrific in a way Thank that you, you weren't a long time ago. And that is through cultivation of skill and effort. And I feel the same way about my own career. You know, I've been doing this since I was 17, which means I've been doing this for 17 years now. And... I feel like I've gotten better at it because you, you put in the time and you get better. You've gotten so many reps in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Know? Like at a certain point, you, you really have to cultivate a skill. It feels like the, the movement spends an awful lot of time promoting people who have not actually spent the time cultivating the skill. Yeah. If, you, if you either mouth the platitudes or alternatively, if you troll, 
Right. And these are these are the two paths to fame and glory in the conservative movement, which yeah. is you say a bumper sticker or you say something really trolly just to get attention. Right. And then you are celebrated by the people who are glad that somebody said something offensive. Right. That's not, I think, where the future of the that, movement lies. That's where I'm inspired to see you do so well. Uh, because there was a period, like you and I both know, there was a period not that long ago where we thought our careers were in doubt because it was just the, the whole kind of trolley or bumper sticker slogan. We both, I remember talking mm-hmm. on the phone. No, we had many of these like, conversations. We're like, man, I don't know if this is the end of this where it's it's a bumper sticker or just saying something outlandish, but that's not what we do and we're not going to change who we are. So, you know, your success, I always I always sort of uh, vicariously live through your success from like, man, I'm glad to see that someone can do what Ben does because he's doing what he wanted to do for a long time. It is more substantive. It is not what media used to be. And guess what? People have been craving it. That means a lot to me. One of my one of my favorite films. Like we talk about, uh, we're talking sort of about passing the torch. You ever see the Shootist? Was John sure. Wayne's last yep. film? Yep. Okay. So for people who don't know, it's about you know this guy who wants to live out his last. I think he has ca- cancer, he has cancer, pancreatic mm-hmm. cancer. Uh, it was, it's a, uh, a young uh, Ron Howard um, and uh, is it is it Gregory Peck? And there who's or is it Jimmy Stewart? No, it's Jimmy Stewart. And who's the woman? Is it Annette? I can't remember. I, I don't know. Anyway, but the point is he goes uh, to this town. He's this famous shootist. You know, he's a shootout artist. And uh, he wants to die, so he wants to live quietly. But unfortunately, a young uh, Ron Howard lets the word out that this guy is in town and everyone wants to take their crack at him. And at this point, John Wayne has a death wish. He wants to die. So at that point, he goes out publicly to the saloon and he can see all of the guys there who are ready to shoot him. And uh, it's a very powerful scene for me because it's the end of the movie the end of the film, and um, there's a shootout. And at a certain point, actually, he shot everybody, but there's, I think, one guy left with a shotgun trained on him, and he pauses because he knows he could let this happen, and he wants to die, but instead he turns around and shoots the guy and finishes his drink, and he's it's kind of melancholic. And it's because he wanted to be taken out, but he wasn't going to give it to him. <laughs> and that's kind of how I, I want there to be someone else uh, eventually, but it's got to be someone who... Same thing, I'm sure, with you as you get older when you retire. It's got to be someone who you can entrust with what we've built. And I think also it's a big space, and I hope that there are a lot of voices in it. So I, I, yes. hope, that, I hope that you're wrong and that you're continuing to do this after, you know, after the age of 41, because come on. Uh, but we'll, I just don't want to have to, but go uh, back hear, to your sponsors. Okay, so I do have one more question for you. I want to hear your greatest fear for the country and your greatest hope for the country. But for our listeners, if you actually want to hear Stephen's answer, you have to be a Daily Wire subscriber. To subscribe, go to dailywire.com, click subscribe, and you can hear the end of our conversation. Over there. Well, man, who certainly is not a coward and the host of Ladder with Crowder, Stephen, thanks so much for stopping by, dude. It's great to see you. Thank you, sir. Hand on the leg. Hand on the leg. No, I'm kidding. I won't, I won't put that. Put that. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producers, Mathis Glover and Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, 
I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 